Hello, my name is Ben Lindsay, CEO and founder of Power the Fight. And welcome to Power Talk, talks that empower you to impact youth violence in your context. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and best practice. Today we are interviewing Temi Mowali, CEO and founder of the Forefront Project. Temi, thank you for joining us on Power Talk. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? That'd be great. Sure, so I'm Temi Mwale, as you know. Um, I'm the founding director of The Forefront Project, which is a youth-led social enterprise working to support young people that are affected by violence and empower the whole community, really. Um, we've been running for six years now. Mm. I set it up in 2012. I was 16 at the time, and you look at your... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, say, so I was 16 like... at the time, and I set it up because of my own first-hand experiences. Yeah. My friend was killed, ultimately, that's what happened. And I think after he was killed, I've spoken about it quite a lot, but I just didn't see any platforms really. This was in my local area, I'm speaking in my context. Growing up in northwest London, mm. um, our area wasn't necessarily renowned for violence or, right. any, or crime even really, compared to some of the other areas around the city that are more seen in that kind of light. So there was a feeling I had because of that, that maybe that, that's why there wasn't resources or there wasn't any support that was actually in place. And I got to thinking, what could have been in place that not just would have stopped my friend being killed, but that would have been able to support other young people? Because I think growing up in that context, in our local borough, is quite an affluent and wealthy area, but we're living in a very deprived part of that borough. So yeah. it's like a different world to the rest of the people that live in that context. And we're really stranded. Like, we don't really have any support around... Yeah. And I just wanted a platform for young people, really, that are closest to the issue. That was mm. the founding aim, because it's our friends that are going to prison, it's yeah. our friends that are getting killed, it's closest to us. So I thought we have the solutions. Yeah. And that's the kind of ethos. I mean, I only started smiling early on, because you said <laughs> you were 16 when you mm. launched this. I was not even thinking about this stuff at 16. I don't want to know what I was thinking about at 16, but <laughs> the point is, it's just amazing. And you're Thank you. 20... Almost 23. You're almost 23, so it's an incredible yeah. achievement. And what? Tell us some of the stuff you do. Yeah, it's evolved a lot, obviously, yep. over the last six years. We started piloting small kind of peer-to-peer youth-led interventions that really focused on giving support around emotional well-being and mental health. So... I use those terms now, but at the time it's just if you've been a victim of this kind of violence or even you're going through the criminal justice system or there's stuff going on at school, you've been excluded, giving you somebody that's near enough to your age, like a few years older than you, that's also from your environment, from your area that can relate to you to speak through some of those things. And then also having targeted group sessions where we were really dealing with like legal empowerment, so teaching young people the law around violence, using the law to start those conversations so we can start speaking about, okay, what is the sentencing for carrying a weapon or how does the law around murder work, you know, because people think, oh, when they didn't intend to do something or they just had a fight or somebody died at the end of the fight, but you're still going to be charged with murder. So just making young people really aware of that. And then we start getting into more deeper conversations about, well, you don't agree with the law around the sentencing for carrying knives, but why? Why do you think it should be lower? Why do you think people shouldn't go to prison? You'd be surprised 
understanding what young people's perceptions of the, the legislation around it was and how it kind of reflected how they saw the moral aspect to what they were doing or mm. how kind of detached they were to, you know, their own personal reasoning for wanting to carry a knife, maybe to protect themselves and how the law is going to view something like that. Yeah. It was very disconnected. So it's a big kind of yeah. lack of understanding Precisely. of kind of, for example... Uh, stop and search. Yeah, it's part um, of it. It's, you know, things like joint enterprise. Nobody really knows anything about it. And I think that was one of the things. In school, a few years before I set this up, we had this kind of assembly that was about joint enterprise and they showed us this film. The police came Just in. tell us very quickly what joint enterprise is. Just, so just... joint... Ent- <laughs> you asked me, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a law, I'm a law graduate, so it's not an easy explanation. No, no. But essentially... If me and you are seen to be in something together, we can be charged for the same crime, even if we play different roles. Right. So if you are to, if we're to both get into a fight and you're to stab someone, yep. I can be charged with murder, even if I didn't really know that you had the weapon or didn't know that you were gonna yep. do that. Yep. But because I'm there, that's the basic principle. And of it's it. not but an old. It, it's, it's not an old. It's not a new law. It's, it's not really no, it's, a law. Like it's not a piece of legislation. Right, it's sure. a doctrine. Well, it kind of comes out of the. This is going to get a bit boring. That's it's okay. It's all right. It's, it's interesting stuff. The Aiding and Abetting, Aiders yeah. and Abetters Act yeah. in 1861. It's evolved since then. Yeah. And it's mostly case law that brings it forward to its current position. It was originally used to deal with dueling. Right. In, you yeah. know... Yeah, like, you know... The at dawn. Yeah, yeah, guns at dawn and all that business. Yeah. And it, it wasn't really being used until maybe... 90s, two, early 2000s, I think, when it's yeah. kind of been brought back into its new form. And now it's seen as one of the main ways to deal with so-called gang-related crimes, group crimes. Yeah. One of the things that I find really interesting about it is obviously we know from research, there's research that's been conducted by um, Dr. Patrick Williams and Becky Clark from MMU called Dangerous Associations, a whole host of other pieces of research that show us joint enterprises mainly used or disproportionately used against, you know, black and ethnic minority communities. So I find it really interesting when the conversation around joint enterprise is skewed because in the papers, for example, they'll say, you know, this is the law that we used to convict um, Stephen Lawrence's killers. Right. Now, that's a real, obviously, a point of not just racial tension, but in our community, in our community memory, um, such a traumatic issue for us, a tra- traumatic incident and a traumatic mm. history that we all share around Stephen Lawrence and his racial, you know, murder. Mm. Yeah. So they're using that to justify now this legislation that is predominantly, you know, being used against our community as well. And what I find really, really interesting about it is however many people were involved in Stephen's murder, only two of them are in prison. Yes. Had it been the other way around or the way that joint enterprise is used now, we've got groups of 10, 13, yeah. 15 young people being charged for one offence and they're all going to prison yes. on life sentences yeah. that, and it's not it's taking not, them 20 years. No, no. So I find the conversation very skewed and it's definitely a racial issue yeah. as well as a lot of the law that is used to deal with so-called group violence. It, the way that the narrative around gangs has been in this country has shaped that perception sure. means that there's a different type of the, the process for, you know incriminating people that are so-called involved in gangs is predominantly used against black communities, which means there's a whole different legal process that's being used and we, against the black community. And the black community, whatever that may or may not look like, um, need to be well aware. And this is why 
it's really yeah. good that you're kind of working alongside Power to Fight because yeah. I think this is a type of training which people yeah. really need to understand in terms of engaging. Let me take it a little bit of a step back. Sure. Um, uh, one of the things that we want to try and do is equip mm -hmm. and empower people to understand the youth violence issue a little bit more. And many people watching this will be coming from a, a perspective where, you know, I've seen some headlines, mm -hmm. but I don't really understand why got this you. is such a big deal and how it's mm -hmm. happened. Uh, we've only got, we haven't got long, so mm -hmm. I'm, in your uh, experience, what are some of the drivers for yeah. why we are in this situation where youth violence specifically knife crime has gone up over the mm -hmm. last uh, couple of years uh, to, you know, you read all this type of stuff where it's gone up by 17%, um, I think mm -hmm. in London and across the UK it's going up. What, what are some of the drivers, what are some of the reasons for this? I want to focus on primarily, I think we've got the situation where being exposed to violence and the impact that has on individuals, the impact that has on entire communities, whether that, and that includes the family group, not just of a victim, but of the, the young person that may have committed the crime, the friendship groups, the school community, the local area, the borough. There's so many different communities and everybody has been affected by one you know, violent incident. And then we're times in that by the hundreds of violent murders against children in this, in this country, in the city. And then furthermore, it's not just the, the murders, it's every other incident that is extreme violence against young people that doesn't result in death where these young people survive and are carrying that with them. And it's such a complex picture, but the bottom line is there's such little support available to young people that have been victims of violence and to their their peer groups, their friendship groups, and their family to deal with the aftermath of, of being attacked, of being a victim. And I think that is the bottom line, like that is the crux of it. Because what happens when that's not dealt with? You've mm. got people that are completely desensitized to what has happened, you know? And we work at the Forefront Project, we're working with young people, some of them 15, 16, and I say it all the time, that have been stabbed three, four times. Serious violent offenses that the majority of this country, thankfully, will never have to deal with, never have to experience anybody close to them being attacked in this way, let alone themselves, and feeling like they don't have a route to deal with it. So these children think that it's normal that this happens to them, mainly because there aren't even adults that are not just saying to them in a, through a lens that, you know, it's wrong to carry weapons, it's wrong to attack people. No, but it's wrong that this happened to you, and sure. there's a range of things you're going to feel after experiencing something like this, because it isn't normal to, mm. for you to go through this and for anyone to go through this. I would just love for the young people to be more aware of, you know, some of their, their emotions that they may be feeling after something like this happens and how that might affect their behaviour moving forward, how it changes their perception and once it, of, of their reality, of their world. And once they become a victim like this, a lot of the time when they're repeat victims, they start to move through life day to day trying to navigate mm. how they can um, avoid the threat of violence and their entire life revolves around that yeah. and that's not a way for anybody to live let alone a child yeah. in 21st century Britain to yeah. just be navigating on a day to day away from violence. But I suppose it would be some people who would yeah. say well this clearly impacts a specific and a a particular type, I and mean, you yourself have mm. mentioned a couple of times already the disproportionality yeah. of how youth violence can impact black Afro-Caribbean mm -hmm. 
children. Yet, one of the things I'm always trying to communicate to people is that this isn't just a black problem, especially when you go outside of London and you go like, to, like across the UK. Yeah. Um, but we've got this tension, especially mm. in the bigger cities across the UK, and this does impact. Why is it impacting? Why does it feel like it's impacting disproportionately black young men and women? Yeah, let's be clear about this. Violence affects everybody yeah. in our country, as you've said. And the issue of serious youth violence is not um, new, but yeah. it's also not only you know, young black people that are involved in that kind of violence or victims of that kind of violence across the country. Yeah. However, when you add the racial dynamic, there is a difference in how people can be affected, not by the impact of violence, but we're talking about a society that yeah. has institutional racism. That's the bottom line. And when we look at that, how does that impact a, a range of things? Mm. And how has that created a culture where young people, young black people are disproportionately in a city like London impacted by this kind of violence? There's several elements to it, I think. One of the things is the tension and the relationship between the black community and the police, where the police are not seen from such a young age, the police are not seen as a, a route for protection, as a route to call to, for safety when your life is under threat. I don't know anybody that would call the police. That's a very tragic thing to say. That's a, not, yeah. That is a scary thing to say. If we have a society where people are being paid to protect and serve, and there's a whole section of society that neither feels protected nor served by this force, mm. and that is it. There's a police force, but they're not a force to everybody. They're service to most people. But in the black community, they are definitely seen as a force. Mm. And there's a difference. So in that sense, how does that impact um, the community if people feel like they have to take matters into their own hands? Or they're more worried about, um, for example, the impact of bringing a police the police service into a, a high-attention situation mm. if it's not going to be de-escalated? Are they going to be seen as victims or are they still going to be seen through the lens of criminals? You know, there's been people that have said they've called police to come and assist them and they have been arrested in these kind of situations. That's not a one-off thing. These do happen, you know, often. And it's not... It's a collective community memory here that I'm talking about of the historic issues around the police that then matches with their personal experiences from childhood up until today that create this environment where mm. the police are seen as being quite hostile and not there to support young people. And I think you've made, victims. No, and I think you've made a massive point. I mean, I think it was the uh, race disparity audit in 2016, 2017, which basically said that uh, people, like black, the black community feel like they, they are the ones who are the most likely to become victims, but also the ones who have the least trust in the authorities. So, yeah. to, so that's well, a yeah. crazy situation to be in. I feel like a victim, but I also don't trust the people who are meant to... But it's not, and it's not just policing, it's no. all other institutions. I use that as one example, but we're also dealing with, you know, the healthcare system. There's, um, when I'm talking about the, the mental implications, the mental health and emotional oh. well-being, the impacts after being victims of violence, and then we've got a historic distrust of the mental health services in this country. That's another added element. We've then got, you know, why are, you know, black communities more likely to live in deprived communities? Why are they more likely to live on the higher floors of tower blocks? Why are they more likely to have less income, less um, opportunity for earnings? So there's the socioeconomic disparities as well that are, you know, existing for all ethnic minorities, but particularly the black community in this country that plays a role in it. So would you say, it sounds like you're saying, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like we can't just look at youth violence and or violence as just being 
the, the main issue. We have to actually look at all these other factors. These are the root causes. The root causes. The root causes. Poverty. How are we going to address the violence without it? And, and another added element, the education system, that again, there are racial disparities in that, who are more likely to be excluded from school. You know, there's been research that's shown, you know, young mm. black Caribbean boys are 168 times more likely if they have special educational needs to be excluded than a white, um, you know, mm. a white British girl. Mm of the same age, like 168 times. That is crazy. The rate of exclusion is so much higher. And then we see the trajectory when you've, you know, excluded young people. There is a high portion of young people that are excluded that, you know, then go to the people of Feral Unit that don't serve them very well. And, you know, unfortunately, that's the position that we're in. And then they also have to carry that feeling of being excluded from mainstream society with them. And then the Prison Reform Trust, I think it was, did research that showed 46% of prisoners were excluded from school. That's not just black, but yeah. if we look at the disproportional, you know, how disproportionate that is. Yeah. So there's a range of reasons why, you know, black people might be disproportionately impacted by the violence. But another added element to it is living in a society that creates your identity for you. In the sense that when we look at other research that's been done that shows, you know, when young black men and boys are spoken about in the media, 60, more than 60% of the time, the gang label will be used to describe them. Seven out of 10 times when they're spoken about in the press is to do with crime, not to do with anything else other than crime. So there's a perception in the society that young black people are criminals, more likely to be violent, and that also is pushed onto them as an identity. And then if you've got a society telling you, you know, expecting this stereotype of you and pushing that onto you, to a certain extent, people do start to internalise it and adopt it in the absence of our own historical learning. There's, you know, been a decline in the kind of services, whether it's Saturday schools or other, you know, social and cultural provisions to help young black people have a sense of identity and a space to engage in activism and fight against this oppression. If you know you're being treated differently because of the way that you look and your skin colour in this country and you're never mm. given any kind of outlet to try and combat that, to try and fight against that or challenge that, it's just oppressive. And that yeah. plays a role as well. So I think we've got the racial trauma of being disproportionately impacted by, you know, in a disproportionate position in this country that then is an added layer to the violence. But, you know, but some people, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate, so, but some people will be like, you know, Surely it's a level playing field, you know? Uh, I'm not even going to entertain it. It's not. It's just factually oh, yeah. incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. It's factually incorrect. It's definitely not a level, play, a level playing field. Full stop. Yeah. So I'm not even going to entertain yeah. the idea that it is. If people feel like it is in this day and age, they are the people that need to do the learning. Because sure. all of the information about yeah. why it isn't is readily available for there. everyone in this society to find out. So, okay. And just for the record, I agree with you. Um, but... In terms of what can be done, so mm. yeah, I think you've laid that out very well. There is disproportionality, there are historic issues, yeah. there is distrust. Okay, but nevertheless, we've got this issue now. And we need to get to grips with what's, with what's yeah. going on. What, in your mind, are some of the solutions? And I suppose there are a few different aspects of this. What is it that uh, statutory should be doing, statutory yeah. organisations? What is it that community groups should, should be doing? Be doing. So, for, you know, for me, as a pastor of a church, as somebody with, like, what we're trying to do with Power to Fight is empower, equip, upskill communities, whether that is faith groups, mm -hmm. whether that is community groups, whether that is arts organisations. We're trying to say, look, we all can have an answer to this issue. 
in your mind and your experience, what are some of the solutions yeah. we could be doing as a community to help this issue? There are many things. Obviously, um, the Forefront Project, we're a youth-led social enterprise. We're a grassroots organisation. And the kind of work we do, working peer-to-peer -peer with young people, has a good impact on young people because, again, it's letting them see people that look like them, that come from their environment, that they can relate to, that have experiences that resonate with them, to empower them, being in a position to help them get from A to B, with A being, I'm in this situation, I'm not really sure where I'm going, I've been the victim of all of this violence, may, may not have done well in the educational system, may not have many financial opportunities. It's, it's, they need support to deal with everything that's going on in their life, that's holistic support, and they need the people that are closest to them in their communities to be empowered to do that work to support them on the ground, in absence of the other services. Right. While we're waiting for, you know, two-year um, waiting lists for mental health services, yeah. the community yeah. people that are there on the front line every day need to be upskilled capacity building for them so that we have the ability to deal with crisis, mental health crisis, with young people that may be experiencing PTSD or high levels of depression or a range of other psychological problems as a result of being victims of this violence. And um, we need the ability to support them. So I would really... Um, advocate for training to be like resources to be pumped into training people on the front line, people that are living in these communities, not just the grassroots organizations doing the work, mm. but other community members, the aunties, the people that are running other businesses in the community, that people, anybody that's coming into contact with these young people, their family and their immediate yeah. close circles should have the training to be able to understand what they are going through and to be able to deal with it whilst we're waiting for other services. And yeah. that's empowering because that's something that we can do for ourselves. Holistic work means, for me, supporting a young person as an individual with all of the needs that they may have. And that is the kind of work that, you know, a young person might have a worker for this, they have a support worker for that, they've got someone doing helping them with the housing, they've got all of these other statutory services and agencies. They might have to speak to 15 to 20 different people to sort out things that are going you know, wrong in their life. And it's just, it's too much for them to deal with sure. at their young age. So there's that, I feel like there's a role for community to play in bridging the gap and making that a bit easier for yeah. those young people. And that, and that's really good, because I think that's what <clears throat> we're trying to do with Power of Fright. I think we are saying that faith groups and community groups can be part of the solution and Definitely. be part of the answer. Uh, in a way they may not have been before. I'm really glad you mentioned training. You're going to be doing some training with, with us, hopefully, and then some workshops, which would be brilliant. Um, so I'm going to kind of close there. One but thing I, I, I was about to say, like, give thing. final comment if there's anything. I think I don't want people to underestimate that there is specialist work that needs to take place. So whilst there's a role for everyone in this struggle and there's a way that everyone can support and there's something everyone can do, I think for some reason, it is seen as almost a glamorous issue, which is beyond me. But there's this idea that people people kind of want to be there, you know, in the trenches, you'll hear people saying they want to be on the front line working with young people that are going through these things that are, you know, the most in need at this time. And not everybody should be doing that, yeah. that work. There is a role for everyone, but yeah. off, so often we have people that are approaching us saying, you know, they want to do this type of mentoring yeah. and they want to work with these types of young people. That work isn't for everyone. So I think it's understanding in this context what is all of the 
things that need to be done, what are all the different roles that are available. And it's not just financial support, although financial support would be beneficial, empower those that are actually already doing the work. But it's also, how can you give your time? What is the best way to give your time? What's the best way to give your energy? And what skills do you have that you can give that will be beneficial? Not just to the young people, but maybe to the other, maybe to organisations. Maybe it's providing space for yeah. young people to meet. Maybe it's providing um, other mentorship or other guidance in business fields or other kind of mm. opportunities. There's many things that can be done. Yeah. Not just you know working on the front line. If that's, uh, and I think that's yeah. a brilliant point to close on because I think that way everybody can feel that there's something They've they can do. Because you're right. True. Not everybody is. Uh, I mean, this is part of the, some of the criticism I can, I give yeah. to people. It's kind of like, oh, it, uh, when we're even thinking about how we do our charity, very much everyone's like, well, you've got to do the frontline stuff. And the way I look at it is that there is kind of ground war mm. and there's air war. And I think the ground war, in my mind, would be there is the face-to-face work yeah. with young people. And I think that's good. Yeah. There's a lot of organisations that are doing that. that. Yeah. But I think equally as important is what I call the air war, which is sometimes the strategy, the advocacy, yeah, the, the be able to liaise with, with different organisations and stuff. And you, hopefully you can bring them together and then mm. you, can, you can get this synergy of, of, of work. But I think you made a massive point. We can't just look at this as a glamorous thing, especially... When I, like you, I've seen young people I know who have been murdered, and it isn't a joke. So I think no. it's a really important point. Tell me, thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's always enlightening and inspiring just talking to you. And I wish at 16 I was doing some <laughs> more important things like you were doing. But um, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. <laughs>